This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. Welcome. Uh, we are delighted that you're here. I'm uh, Carol Simon, and I have the honor of being the provost here at Whitworth University. And uh, it's my honor tonight uh, to introduce uh, this um, event, which is um, an annual Lindemann uh, Care Festival. And so I want to say just a little bit about what endowed chairs are and why they're important. Endowed chairs allow Whitworth University to honor the accomplishments of particular faculty members and to provide resources to facilitate teacher scholarship and continuing intellectual growth. These named positions also honor the values of the donors and those whose legacy is highlighted in each position highlight. The holder of an endowed position has a continual reminder of the generosity of those who are partnering in his ongoing work as a scholar and teacher. The Edward D. Lindemann Chair is due to Whitworth's 13th president, who was established in 1982 to honor his work as futurist, business leader, and educator. The holder of the chair is to enhance the academic program for Whitworth students and faculty through contributions to general education and to faculty development. The individual is also charged with enriching public conversations around significant issues as a Christian scholar. Dr. Tony Clark is in his second year as, uh, of his four-year term as the Lindemann Chair. And as Lindemann Chair, he has been a diligent and prolific scholar and a splendid mentor to faculty colleagues and to uh, student research assistants. He's been a catalyst for intellectual community, both at Whitworth and internationally. Um, Anthony E. Clark earned his PhD in Chinese history and culture from the University of Oregon in 2005. He studied languages and cultural history at leading universities in China and France. Um, Clark joined Whitworth's um, history faculty in 2009 after serving as a professor of Chinese history at the University of Alabama. He's been a recipient of several scholarly awards that have funded his research on Christianity in China, including year-long grants from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the American Council of Learned Societies, and the Fulbright Foundation. He's been a researcher at the Vatican Secret Archives, a very special opportunity that he had. In addition to his articles, reviews, papers, and, and book chapters, Dr. Clark has published several scholarly books. He has two books that will be forthcoming soon. His edited volume, China's Christianity from Missionary to Indigenous Church, contains essays based on an international conference that Tony hosted here at Whitworth in the fall of 2015. His forthcoming contribution to uh, interfaith understanding is entitled Catholicism and Buddhism, the Contrasting Lives and Teaching of uh, Jesus and Buddha. Tony's 2015 book, Heaven in Conflict, examined the history of Franciscan missionaries during Chinese um, Boxer Rebellion. One reviewer of that book praised it as a superb contribution to modern Chinese history 
as well as to Catholic missionary history, and praised it especially for offering a new methodology for seeking deeper meaning from the events of earthly history. Uh, here I'm quoting the reviewer, Anthony Clark should be commended for offering us a history that invites us to ponder the ultimate futility of earthly triumph, something that um, I think that as uh, American Christians, it's especially uh, helpful for us to ponder. Uh, tonight's lecture grapples with the ways that two modern Christian intellectuals, Thomas Merton and John Wu, interpret the ancient Taoist uh, idea uh, of, um, from China in light of Christian belief. A version of tonight's presentation will soon be published in the uh, journal, The Merton Annual. I'm confident that we will benefit intellectually and spiritually from the insights that Tony will share with us tonight. We're also honored uh, to be joined by Dr. Eric Cunningham, uh, professor of history at Gonzaga University and a specialist in uh, modern Japanese intellectual history, uh, focusing on appropriations of Zen, uh, who is with us tonight to give a brief response to Dr. Clark's paper. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Anthony Clark to give his Lindemann Chair Lecture. Thank you, Dr. Simon. That was so kind, and I feel uh, greatly humbled to have so many of my students and students of Whitworth and colleagues and dear friends from many departments, philosophy and theology. And uh, it's fitting that there are so many philosophers and theologians I see here today because I'm treading into terra incognita. I'll be talking a bit about philosophy and theology. And um, and I know there are, the cups in the back are soft, so if you need to throw them at me, um, I know I'll, I'll be unscathed. Um, and this, uh, this, I'll read my, I'm being podcasted, so I'll read my remarks. And it's about 42 minutes, and then Dr. Cunningham will, will, um, will, will come and, and, uh, have a few uh, responses to what I'm going to say. Um, so thank you for that introduction, and thank you for being here. Um, so last year I spoke about religious freedom and how freedom to practice one's religious beliefs is paradoxically confined by the reign of God, who establishes rules by which freedom is actually limited. I attempted to confront mainly what in modern academic parlance is called current issues. But tonight I would like to resist what G.K. Chesterton considered to be the modern cult of relevance. He once wrote, Humans invent new ideals because they dare not attempt old ideals. They look forward with enthusiasm because they are afraid to look back, close quote. So I'm a historian. And so this year I'm interested in considering what dialogue looks like when modern Christian intellectuals encounter views formed in a culture far distant from the cultures within which Christianity emerged. And views formulated by intellectuals who lived long before Christ was born. Religious and intellectual dialogue is always important, but it is always difficult. Agatha Christie, in her novel Towards Zero, wrote that, quote, it's extraordinary the amount of misunderstandings there are even between two people who discuss things quite often. 
both of them assuming different things and neither of them discovering the discrepancy, close quote. So I'd like to talk tonight about how Christians, mostly modern ones, have responded to one of the most popular and ambiguous world philosophies in Asia, Taoism. Uh, if you look at on the back of your programs, there are some, maybe hopefully, some useful terms about what Taoism is. It's a Chinese philosophy based on a character Tao, which means literally path or way. I think that we can gain much through honest dialogue, and perhaps if we are persistent and open-minded, we will actually discover and illuminate the discrepancies that Agatha Christie mentions in her book. So I would like to begin my talk tonight with an example of how one scholar can redirect the course of human history, especially religious and philosophical history, based upon what she or he discovers and writes about. The dialogue between cultures and intellectuals can change the world. In fact, Christianity and Western civilization was transformed when a Christian missionary in China published a history of China's past. And by the way, I'll be talking about a book that Whitworth Special Collections has a copy of over here, um, published in the late 17th century. In 1684, at a meeting of the Royal Academy of Sciences in Paris, the Jesuit missionary Philippe Couplet outlined to his fellow European intellectuals what he had learned about historical chronology while in China. He demonstrated that for most of the world, most of the world then, like today, was Asian, the biblical chronology of the human past could not be easily reconciled with their records. Another Jesuit missionary from China, Joseph de Maya, wrote what is still the largest single-author Western-language history of China ever written, a 13-volume collection of massive tomes. And that's one of the, the books, the copies, one of the volumes is, is, is just to my left. De Maya noted the persistent Chinese commitment to truthfully recording the past. And then he transmitted China's version of the past in which the then-held historical chronologies based upon the Vulgate and Septuagint Bibles were for practical purposes, according to many Western intellectuals, dismantled. It was precisely the writings of Couplet and Dumaya that provided the inspiration and, quote, evidence to, quote, attack and disprove the veracity and ver validity of the Christian Bible. As a modern Jesuit puts it, quote, China seriously modified the, the, the European worldview. In other words, it was the religious and historical dialogue between 17th and 18th century Christians and Chinese that helped produce the Western Enlightenment and a new and vigorous era of what I would call anti-Christian secularism. So my point here is simple we should take seriously the effects of religious, historical, and philosophical dialogue. The intellectual work that happens in archives, libraries, and small offices very often transforms the entire world. The Asian challenge to the traditional Christian understanding of the past based upon a biblical chronology, a challenge that largely ignited and fueled the Enlightenment began when Christian intellectuals first opened the historical books of China and engaged the Chinese in the kind of philosophical and religious dialogue that I would like to model tonight. 
I would like to spend the next few minutes demonstrating what I suggest should be a more common way of thinking about other cultural beliefs compared to Christianity. So I'll use the example of a correspondence between the, a Chinese Christian intellectual, John Wu, and a Trappist monk from Kentucky, Thomas Merton, to illustrate how Christians both fail and succeed when they engage the religious and philosophical ideals and ideas of early China, and how we can better understand our own beliefs when we do the difficult work of trying to accurately understand the beliefs of others. In the fourth century, a group of Christian men in Egypt, Palestine, Arabia, and Persia abandoned society to find what Thomas Merton refers to as, quote, their own true self in Christ, close quote. It is astonishing to me that these desert fathers and mothers imparted Christian principles that are nearly identical to the assertions of the early Chinese Taoists. The famous Taoist philosopher Zhuangzi recorded an account of the death of his wife. He writes of himself in the third person. Zhuangzi writes, quote, When Zhuangzi's wife had died, his friend Huizi went to convey his condolences. But when Huizi arrived, he found Zhuangzi sitting with his legs sprawled out, pounding on a tub, and singing a song happily. Huizi said, You lived with your wife. She brought up your children, and she grow, grew old with you. It's bad enough not crying at her death, but pounding on a tub and singing, isn't this going too far? Close quote. Zhuangzi is unperturbed by Huizi's criticism of this of his joyful singing after his wife's death. He replies that, quote, Now my wife is going to lie down peacefully in a great room, and if I merely follow after her bawling and sobbing, it would show that I don't understand anything about faith. So I stopped crying, close quote. In other words, Zhuangzi suggests that weeping when one's, uh, when one's wife dies expresses a profound misunderstanding of what death truly is, something more appropriately celebrated. A story recorded in the sayings of the Desert Fathers recounts an exchange between an elder and a group of monks surrounding him as he lay dying. The monks dressed the dying elder in a shroud and began weeping. The dying man opened his eyes and began to laugh. He then laughed two more times, while his brothers continued to wail over his passing. They asked, Tell us, Father, why are you laughing while we cry? He responded, I laughed the first time because you fear death. I laughed the second time because you are not ready for death. And the third time I laughed because from my work and my labors I at last go to my rest. Close quote. Both the Taoist and the Christian accounts of joyful merriment in the face of death represent well one of the many areas of intersection between how Chinese Taoists and early Christian monastics viewed the spiritual connotations of dying. Another desert father who was named Serapion, quote, and I love this one, sold his book of the Gospels and gave the money to those who were hungry, close quote. When justifying why he gave away his Bible, the monk exclaimed, quote, I have sold the book which told me to sell all that I had and give to the poor, 
close quote. This is precisely like the famous Taoist axiom expressed by Zhuangzi that, quote, a fish trap is for catching fish. Once you've caught the fish, you can throw away the trap, close quote. For Taoists, as well as the Christian Desert Fathers, once one has fully absorbed the teachings imparted by the sacred texts, the sacred text is no longer needed. The entirety of the Taoist and Christian paradigms are pointers to a specific message. The pointers themselves are not the message and diminish once the message is understood. So my point in mentioning these similarities is to illustrate that religious and philosophical ideas at their highest levels of inquiry often intersect. There is something, I think, about the human condition that compels us towards similar conclusions. But divergence as well as correspondence exists. And so I would like to consider now how two Christian intellectuals, the Trappist monk and author Thomas Merton, and the Chinese philosopher, di philosopher diplomat John Wu engaged Taoism and each other in order to reflect on how one of Asia's most influential philosophical traditions contrasts with the writings of Jesus Christ and the Christian church. So this will, I, I hope, also serve to highlight how Christians have engaged the principles expressed most acutely in the early Taoist texts, the Tao Te Ching, the way and, and its virtue, and the Zhuangzi, simply titled, the title follows the name of the, of the writer, Zhuangzi. Sometime in 1937, John Wu visited a small Catholic Carmelite monastery in Chongqing in Sichuan province to find a few moments of respite and spiritual contemplation. One of the sisters there, Mother Elizabeth, rem remembered his, quote, hesitant French, but also recalled a, remark a remarkable encounter the sisters had with Wu after Mass. In her memoir, she writes, quote, the holy sacrifice was just coming to a close when there echoed the air alarm of, of the air raid of Japanese planes, a long and lugubrious sound like a death knell, close quote. The area was being attacked by Japanese warplanes, and Wu was ushered into the private enclosure of the nuns for safety. Once in their small bomb shelter, the sisters asked Dr. Wu about his, his conversion to Catholicism, and he replied, quote, It was Confucius who brought me to Christianity and Therese of the child Jesus to Catholicism, close quote. John Wu's understanding of Confucius helped, to, helped him to better appreciate Christianity, and he became a Methodist. His encounter with Therese of Lisieux led him to become a Catholic. John Wu was not the only Chinese intellectual to recognize how the thought of Confucius resonates with the teachings of Christianity. The Chinese diplomat, who later became a Benedictine abbot in Bruges, Belgium, Don Pierre Celestine Lu Zhengxiang, wrote in his memoir, quote, I am a Confucianist because that moral philosophy profoundly penetrates the nature of humanity and traces clearly his line of conduct towards the Creator. Close quote. That Confucius and Christ are well matched is quite apparent to those who have studied the Confucian classics. 
But when John Wu and Thomas Merton began their seven-year epistolary exchange in 1961, Merton asked Wu to help him understand the Taoist writings of Zhuangzi. So my question is then, how are we, 50 years later, to assess their Christian interest in Taoist philosophy? That Confucianism harmonizes well with the Christian faith is not difficult to recognize. But where did Wu and Merton stand in their conviction that Taoism likewise complements Christianity? I'm especially interested in how Wu and Merton understood the implications and applications of the Taoist way, or Tao, in their dialectical exchange of letters. So as a university professor trained in classical sonology, I view the greatest compliment an intellectual can pay to the ideas and publications of an important thinker, such as Thomas Merton, is engagement and analysis. So my remarks tonight are thus intended to be, to be more of a compliment than a criticism, and my conclusions are in, intended to add to the important discussion that Wu and Merton inaugurated 55 years ago about the Christian dialogue with early Chinese Taoist thinkers. So by way of a brief salvo, I'll begin uh, with an examination of what is implied in the Tao Te Ching, the most famous Taoist text, by the term Tao, and how this early Chinese text's usage of the term compares to the usage employed by Merton and Wu. In Thomas Merton's first letter to John Wu, in which he seeks Wu's assistance in preparing a book on the writings of Zhuangzi, one of Merton's most famous books, and its edition is here, the Trappist expresses his desire to immerse himself in, quote, the mysticism of early Taoists, close quote. This statement entreats us, us who have read the early Taoist texts in Chinese, to ponder what Merton means by Taoist mysticism, and even what he means by this, Christ, this mysticism as a Christian. The theologian Louis Bouillet describes mysticism as, quote, God's uniting himself directly with us, close quote. And Herbert Fischer, who provided the entry on mysticism in Karl Rahner's Encyclopedia of Theology, suggests that it is, quote, the experience of uncreated grace as, revel as revelation and self-communication of the triune God, close quote. In other words, mysticism is the experience of unsolicited union with the triune God. In John Wu's lengthy response to Merton's first letter, Wu appears to, confer, to confirm Merton's inclination that philosophical Taoism is compatible with the Christian understanding of mysticism. Wu wrote, quote, Only when we are united with the Word incarnate can we be full-fledged Confucianists and thoroughgoing Taoists at the same time, close quote. Merton sees in early Taoism an alternative model for Christian mysticism, and Wu submits that only in being united with God can one be, quote, a thoroughgoing Taoist, close quote. And even more provocative is Wu's suggestion that the ideas of Laozi and Zhuangzi were, quote, pointing at the logos of God who enlightens everyone coming into this world, close quote. This is a key point. So first, um, 
they they suggest that Taoism is uh, 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 compatible with Christian mysticism, and now the word Tao it resonates or equals the the term logos used in Christianity. So I'll consider these points in sequence after a brief detour into what the Tao meant in early to early Taoists, uh, who uh, Merton refers to. And excuse me if I get just slightly technical, slightly technical here, so bear with me for the next 10 minutes. I'll come back out of uh, academic territory in just a moment. Perhaps the most prominent definition of the Tao in early Chinese texts derives from the first line in the Tao Te Ching. The original text reads in Chinese, it's, it's really kind of beautiful, the entire Tao Te Ching sounds like poetry. In fact, I think it's intended to to uh, induce a trance in the reader. But it, the beginning is this: Dao ke dao fei chang, dao ming ke ming fei chang ming. That's how it begins. So Wu translates this passage as, "Quote: This is John Wu's translation. Dao that can be talked about, but not the eternal Dao." Close quote. Wu indulges here what almost all experienced translators disparage as horrible translation. He dodges the question of what the Tao is by refusing to translate it. He uses neither way to render the character, which is the most common translation, nor does he attempt an explanation of what this vague Chinese term implies. Wu simply prefers to leave the term ambiguous, perhaps because the text itself is suggesting the ineffability of the term. But this is avoidance and does not help the English reader arrive at even the slightest understanding of what the original Chinese author is getting at. The 3rd century uh, BC philosopher Han Feidze explains the Tao in this way. It's a beautiful, simple, in Chinese, a beautiful, simple explanation. Tao zhe wan wu zhi suo ran ye, or quote, the Tao, the way, is the thusness of all things, close quote. Said another way, the Tao is defined as the existential reality or state of all that exists. It is the pattern and meaning of everything. Embedded in the grammar of this opening line of the Tao Te Ching is an, is an intimation of its larger meaning. The first Tao in the sentence is nominal. It is a noun, the way. And the second appearance is verbal. It is the action of weighing. So I would thus translate this line as Angus Graham rendered it in his wonderful book, Disputers of the Tao. He translates it this way. The way that can be weighed, W-A-Y-E-D, the way that can be weighed is not the constant way, close quote. Implied in this assertion is that the Tao or way includes all dualities, all apparent opposites in a unified whole. All dyads, or bifurcated things, are in fact only a unified whole. In other words, the Tao encompasses all binaries. If we use the provisional word truth to translate the Tao, then this truth, the Tao as truth, would comprise both truth and non-truth, since one cannot exist without the other. The Tao, according to Taoism, would thus contain both bad and good, since one cannot endure without its opposite. The Tao, then, has less to do with a mystical encounter with the triune God as it is a functional term to describe the ontological state of all being, or non-being. 
It is ineffable because no term can accurately define what defies definition. The Tao is metalinguistic or beyond words. This is perhaps what the Tao Te Ching itself is insisting when it states Tao Chang Wu Ming or the eternal way, the eternal Tao has no name. John Wu expressed his understanding of this idea when he corrected Merton's use of philosophical monism, recommending the more accurate term non-dualism. In any case, the early Taoist writers who used the term Tao to express non-dualism were chasms away from any notion of communing with God. The expression was merely a provisional term to help readers better understand Taoist ontology. So what is, in my view, even more intriguing than Thomas Merton's sense of sense that early Taoism involves some form of mysticism that is Christian, is Wu's suggestion that uh, uh, is Wu's suggestion to Merton that the Taoist way may be used as an analog for the logos. Now here I'm going to go into very significant territory because in the Bible in Chinese the word Tao is used as logos. So this is significant. So, in St. John's Gospel, there is the famous assertion that states simply that, quote, in the beginning was the word, logos. The Greek usage of this term early on was related to mathematics. And by the authorship of the Gospel, it had acquired a more philosophical implication. As B.K. Gamble has suggested, quote, since logos means an account or explanation of something, some philosophers began to refer to the explanation for order and balance in the universe as a cosmic logos. According to these philosophers, humans can explain things through language because they share in this cosmic logos rationally, close quote. So logos is the illustrative principle of the cosmos, or all being. Now I find my spot. This is, in fact, quite close to what is suggested in the Taoist writer's meaning of the Tao. The first Western philosopher to apply a metaphysical meaning to the Greek word logos was Heraclitus of Ephesus, a meaning that was carried into the canonical writings of the first Christians. Reginald Allen, I think, very succinctly summarizes Heraclitus' use of logos. Quote, Logos is the first principle of knowledge. Understanding of the world involves understanding of the structure or pattern of the world, a pattern concealed from the eyes of ordinary persons. The Logos is also the first principle of existence, that unity of the world process which sustains it as a process. This unity lies beneath the surface, for it is a unity of diverse and conflicting opposites in whose strife the Logos maintains a continual balance. The Logos maintains the equilibrium of the universe at every moment. Close quote. Allen's description of Heraclitus's Logos accurately represents, largely, the early Taoist explanation of the Tao, especially his remark that the Logos can be viewed as, quote, a unity of diverse and conflicting opposites. Close quote. But still, the early Taoist usage of the character Tao was not intended to describe the nature of God, but was rather hoped to better denote the nature of reality and to disengage the reader 
from her or his impulse to define reality in dichotomies. This is perhaps why the Tao Te Ching asserts, quote, humans are modeled from earth, earth is modeled from heaven, heaven is modeled from the Tao, and the Tao is modeled from that which is self-so. It's a beautiful Chinese word, zi-ran, that which comes of itself. Put more simply, the Tao is not modeled upon anything other than itself, which is a self-derived self without opposites or origins. Perhaps I'm being a, a bit pedantic here, but this is what I think religious dialogue and philosophical dialogue should look like, this kind of uh, thinking. It is important to note that whereas the Taoist Tao, or Wei, as it is expressed in the original ancient Chinese sources, includes both aspects of all dichotomies in a unified whole, the God of the Bible is ineffable, but not non-dualistic in the way the Taoist way is. In Scripture, God is described as complete goodness, complete perfection, and complete justice. He is not good and bad, perfect and flawed, just and unjust, which is precisely the implication of the, the term Tao. The complications related to adopting this term, Tao, as an analog to the Greek word, word logos has led Christians in recent years to reconsider how logos is rendered in uh, uh, by, by Chinese Bible translators today. The first complete Catholic translation of the Bible, the so-called Studium Biblicum version, which inspired uh, many Protestant translations, um, translates the opening as John, of John's Gospel in this way. Yuan shi chu jiu you dao, or at the origin of the beginning, there was the Tao. Close quote. And the character Tao, or Wei, is cautiously, in the Bible, cautiously placed in quotation marks, highlighting the ambiguous and borrowed nature of the term, recognizing the various problems with translating Logos as Tao, Modern Chinese translators have completely retranslated logos in a different way. They translate it this way. In the beginning was, I like this, was already the divine word, the sheng yan. In the beginning was already the divine word. The term Tao, Wei, and sheng yan, divine word, are very different. And this new translation carefully distances the Christian understanding of Logos from the Taoist understanding of the Tao. Current Chinese scholars are reassessing previous attempts under the direction of foreign missionaries to adopt extant Chinese religious and philosophical terms into the Christian lexicon. There is a suspicion that Christians, especially Christians from the West, such as Thomas Merton, sought confirmation of their own Christian ideas within China's existing traditions and thus somewhat haphazardly employed terms such as the Tao into their own vocabulary without first understanding the nuances already present in the terms they borrowed. One other aspect of the Tao Te Ching that must be addressed is its patent political message, which is interwoven almost furtively throughout the text. In fact, the earliest edition, the so-called Guodian edition, 
that we know of was located in the tomb of the heir apparent of the state of Chu, so it was a political teaching guide. The Tao Te Ching includes this statement, quote, I love this, this statement, it's, it's a powerful statement, uh, it, it makes me think of Machiavelli, actually, quote, the rule of a sagely man empties their minds, fills their stomachs, weakens their will, and strengthens their bodies, and by doing so, he causes people to be always stupid and without desires, so he can, as a wise ruler, rule without effort, close quote. In other words, stupid and well-fed people are easy pawns in the art of skillful governance. This is a strong and persistent message in the ancient Taoist classic. This is not the Tao understood in the writings of Thomas uh, Merton and John Wu, but it is a, a very pragmatic Tao expressed in the Tao Te Ching. And I think that one who carefully reads the text wonders if in the end, the entire work is foremost a political strategy for keeping subjects dumb and manageable, that the Taoism of the Tao Te Ching is actually less the mystical philosophy admi admired by Christian intellectuals, such as Wu and Merton, than a guide for how to retain political supremacy. But moving toward my conclusion, what of Merton's and Wu's Christian engagement uh, with the writings of Zhuangzi? In one of Thomas Merton's letters to Wu, he praises Zhuangzi as, quote, as one of the great wise men, close quote. And he adds the provocative assertion that, quote, the wisdom of Zhuangzi demands the Christian resurrection, for the resurrection goes beyond all moralities and moral theories. It is totally a new life in the spirit, close quote. So again, is this idea actually close to what Zhuangzi intended in his essays on how to live according to the Tao? Sadly, at, the, at this point of their correspondence, John Wu's response to Merton's uh, letter drifts away from this point, and their future letters almost entirely touch upon Buddhism and the mon more mundane matters of securing publishers and, and setting up meetings with like-minded uh, like intellectuals. Merton's translations of sections from the Zhuangzi, however we think about them, are among the most elegant renderings of the text available in English. In his introduction to his book, The Way of Zhuangzi, Merton acknowledges John Wu as, quote, the chief, a better, and accomplice in the project. And he asserts, I have enjoyed writing this book more than any other I can remember, close quote. So throughout the correspondence between Wu and Merton, one actually sees little evidence of Wu's assistance in the important technical realm of translation. As Vidluck has suggested, this is fascinating to me, so Thomas Merton published the most famous English trans, uh, uh, translation of the, the Zhuangzi when he published it in the 1960s. Vidluck writes, quote, Merton faced several liabilities in his work, not the least of which was the impossible task of rendering a deeply challenging classical Chinese text into English without any training at all in Chinese. Merton's renderings of Zhuangzi's concise and often esoteric sayings were based on four Western language translations. The strength of Merton's version of the Taoist Zhuangzi is largely in its highly readable English and its wide reach to non-Taoist Western readers. Vidluck also points out that Thomas Merton, quote, reveals himself as an inheritor of a particular kind 
of Chinese interpretation of Taoism, that of Christian missionaries, close quote. His elegant prose and somewhat Christian coloring of the text is perhaps why Merton's Zhuangzi remains so popular today. But one is left, I am left, longing for a more substantive Christian dialogue with ancient Taoism than one finds in Merton's The Way of Zhuangzi. That Merton's interpretation of Zhuangzi's ideas are represented through the lens of his own Christian worldview is helpful inasmuch as he discusses Taoism in ways that are better understood by other Christians. But arguably, his presentation of Zhuangzi's message sometimes obscures what the ancient Chinese philosopher was getting at. So one example uh, might help illustrate my point. Merton includes one of my favorite passages from the Zhuangzi, the so-called Joy of Fish passage. If any of you ever go to Portland, there's a pavilion in the Portland Chinese Garden called the Joy of Fish Pavilion. Um, and this is a great passage to read if you're ever there. In this dialogue between Zhuangzi and his interlocutor, Huizhe, um, Merton renders this encounter in very fine prose. Merton writes this. This is his translation. Quote, Zhuangzi and Huizhe were crossing the Hao River by the dam. Zhuangzi said, see how free the fish leap and dart. That is their happiness. Close quote. Huizhe challenges Zhuangzi's assertion that the fish they see below them from their bridge are happy. After all, Huizhe wonders, quote, since you are not a fish, how do you know what makes fish happy? Close quote. Zhuangzi's ready retort enters the dialogue into more philosophical depth. Quote, since you are not me, how can you possibly know that I do not know what makes fish happy? Close quote. By leaving this passage unexamined, the Christian or Taoist reader is left to infer what Merton is saying here in this translation. What then is Zhuangzi's point here? And how does that point compare with Christian ontology? One could, I suppose, suggest that Zhuangzi's dialogue with Huizhi is simply intended to underscore how some things cannot be known objectively. Perhaps Merton wishes the passage to express how, in, how the ineffability of God is unknowingly expressed in the writings of this ancient Taoist text. Such a reading superimposes Judeo-Christian reading on a text that would resist such a reading. In fact, Zhuangzi's message was more likely intended to dispute the reliability of language and objective claims altogether. Quote. I could turn now to, and there's a whole passage I crossed out that talks about the linguistic turn, but I'll leave Derrida out of this. Zhuangzi questions how effective language can be at conveying reality. And Merton's depiction of Zhuangzi dwells more on his own sense of mysticism than the linguistic playfulness that colors all of Zhuangzi's original Chinese text. Non-Christian scholars, such as the French uh, sinologist Henri Mesperot, were perhaps the first Westerners to truly engage Taoism based upon a preliminary mastery of the language and context of China's early thinkers. And reading such works in tandem with the translations of Thomas Merton enriches one's understanding of Zhuangzi while also providing more information 
upon which to base one's comparison between Christianity and ancient Chinese thought. In the end, the musings on the way found in the epistolary exchange between John Wu and Thomas Merton leave us with more questions than answers, which is perhaps precisely the kind of mysticism that both men would have hoped future readers of their writings would dwell upon. There are several areas of especially John Wu's writings that do, however, I think, demonstrate how the dialogue between Christianity and Taoism can help us find our way toward a better way of understanding the perennial teachings of Christianity. Arguably the most insightful of John Wu's books comparing Chinese thought to Christianity is a collection of essays published together in his work, Chinese Humanism and Christian Spirituality. In one of his essays, uh, on St. Therese of, of Lisieux, John Wu, John Wu compares the Christian views of St. Therese of Lisieux to the Taoist teachings of the Tao Te Ching. He begins by conjuring an account in the Gospel of John, wherein John the Baptist identifies himself as the forerunner to the Christ. John the Baptist responds to his interlocutors, quote, The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater, that I must become less. Wu compares the last sentence of this passage to Therese, uh, St. Therese's so-called little way, which follows the advice that, quote, he must become greater, I must become less. He describes this little way as analogous to the Taoist notion that, quote, it is through complete self-loss that herself is fully realized, close quote. The notion that loss equals gain is one of the most basic beliefs of Taoism. Toward the end of the Tao Te Ching, we are told that, quote, there is nothing as weak and submissive than water. Yet, for overcoming that which is hard and powerful, nothing can surpass water. Weakness overcomes strength, and submissiveness conquers the powerful. Close quote. The Taoist qualities of leadership are precisely the qualities of that, that are exalted by Christianity. Humility, meekness, self-sacrifice, and placing others before oneself. As John Wu put it, quote, to be poor is to be truly rich. Suffering is a blessing. To come down is to rise. To be little is to be great. Weakness is strength, and to die is to live, close quote. In a way, this ideal expressed in both Christianity and Taoism reflects the words of Christ, who said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Another area of convergence between Christianity and Taoism is the use of the gendered terms to illustrate apparent paradox. In chapter 61 of the Tao Te Ching, we read, quote, A great country is like a lowland, into which all streams flow, and it is the exchange place of all under heaven. It is the world's feminine aspect which conquers the masculine by its stillness, close quote. In other words, the lowliest place, in quotes, the lowliest place, the hidden place, is the place where greatness is to be found. In a letter to her sister, Celine, Therese of Lisieux wrote, quote, Jesus is a hidden treasure, a good beyond price that few souls can find, for it is hidden 
and the world loves things that glitter. To find a hidden thing, we must ourselves be hidden. We must be like Jesus, like Jesus whose look was hidden. Close quote. Taoism and Christianity, and Merton and Wu understood this well, delight in paradox. As the Tao Te Ching asserts, bow down to become whole, be curved to become straight, be empty to be full, and worn out to become new. Close quote. This is one of the many Taoist passages that echoes the implication of John the Baptist when he affirmed that our smallness is what makes us generally great. Finally, Another convergence between Taoism and Christianity can be seen in the impulse to retreat from the harmful influences that can be found in society. Christian hermits and Taoist hermits share much of the same desire to avoid what the early Chinese called the dusty world. They compared the temptations of the world, such as career success, wealth, social power, and pride, to be like a pesky dust that covers one's person and is difficult to remove. Indeed, the Desert Fathers largely held that to be away from the world was more edifying than living within the mix of humanity. An abbot named Moses in Skeet once told one of his brothers, quote, Go, sit in your cell, and your cell will teach you everything. Close quote. This same impulse is expressed in a beautiful passage located, located in the Zhuangzi. So one day Zhuangzi is fishing in the river Pu, and he was approached by two high-ranking officials sent by the king of Chu to offer him an exalted job. Without even turning to see the two men, Zhuangzi asked the officials, see he's fishing, he doesn't even look at them, he asked the two officials sent by the king of Chu, he asks them, quote, is it true that there is a sacred tortoise stored in the king's ancestral temple, wrapped in fine cloth that has been dead for 3,000 years, close quote. He then asked, do you think this tortoise would rather be dead and have its bones worshipped, or would it rather be alive and drag its tail through the mud? Get away from me. I, like the tortoise, would rather drag my tail in the mud than work in government, close quote. Well, it's a quote from an ancient text. Both the Christian and Taoist hermits suggest that our true nature is best discovered and lived outside of the false allurements of the dusty world. These passages of both the Taoist masters and the Desert Fathers were favorites of Thomas Merton and John Wu, and they underscore how a Christian dialogue with early China's intellectual and religious traditions can serve to both obfuscate and illuminate similarities and differences. I've confronted how, and perhaps even why, Professor John Wu and Thomas Merton have fastened upon the Taoist idea of the way, but I do so only because these two Christian men have bequeathed to us a legacy of rigorous and spiritually discerning interrogations into the graspings of the mind toward better understanding the meaning of human existence. Scholars today can wander freely through the room of philosophical and religious comparison and dialogue only because the likes of Wu and Merton have opened the door for us. In conclusion, I'll read from uh, the ending of John Wu's memoir, Beyond East and West. He quotes 
from the collected poetry of the Taoist scholar Lu Yun, who wrote, quote, Beyond the dusty world, I enjoy solitude and peace. I shut my door. I close my window. Harmony is my spring. Purity is my autumn. Thus I embody the rhythms of life, and my cottage becomes a universe. Close quote. In China's traditional writings, especially Taoist and Buddhist, dust is a euphemism for the polluting and harmful trap of the world. Perhaps more than anything else, John Wu and Thomas Merton turned toward the Tao as a possible way to move beyond the dusty world and find an alternative peace, one better equipped to provide the solitude and peace of the God of Christianity. Dr. Cunningham has a, a few minutes of remarks, and then we have uh, some snacks in the back, and I'll stay around until 8.30 or so. Or, and actually, actually, I'll answer questions. So I present Dr. Cunningham. Good evening, and thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Dr. Clark. Um, let me uh, just make a few comments here, so I don't want to spend a really interesting evening for me, but then again, like Tony, I'm kind of an East Asia geek here, and we like this stuff. Um, but the, the, Professor Clark has shared with us some thoughts uh, about the difficulties that people of goodwill and shared values <clears throat> often encounter when they take part in intellectual dialogue. This particular dialogue, carried on by uh, Thomas Merton and John Wu, deal uh, primarily with the notions of the term Tao and interpretations of what we call Taoism. Now, John Wu, as, as uh, Tony points out, was a, uh, a Chinese convert to Catholicism. Merton was an American convert to Catholicism and is thoroughly modern secular men, both of them. Uh, I think each of them adopted both, Chris, both Christianity uh, and Taoism as, as an alien uh, thought form. Merton in particular, I think, um, who in mid-career as a Trappist monk <coughs> found himself bitten by the bug of uh, intellectual orientalism, if I can use a, an outdated term but a highly descriptive one. And it's not a term that I use dismissively. Uh, I was bitten by the same bug as a young man and so was Dr. Clark. I, I knew him when he was a young man, actually. Um, and sp speaking only for myself, I can say that I would not be here tonight if it hadn't been for Merton uh, and for his always insightful and often idiosyncratic interpretations of East Asian philosophy. The Merton uh, cast his mental net very wide, uh, brought forth a profusion of essays on Asian religion and philosophy, whose topics range from Chinese Taoism, of course, uh, all the way to Japanese uh, Zen Buddhism, which was my own uh, encounter with, with Merton as an Asianist. Um, so Thomas Merton, as a proto-postmodernist, was a strident critic of post-war American society and had a way of depicting Asian thought as something of an antidote uh, to to the modern world, the antidote to the, the constraints of bourgeois modernity and its various religious expressions. 
Um, so without without Merton and such books as these, uh, Zen and the Birds of Appetite, um, I certainly would not be who I am. And when I ask myself, who am I? The answer is something like, I hope. Um, I'm somebody like Thomas Merton, though not as smart and certainly not as holy. But at core, a 20th century Christian who believes in the revelation of Jesus Christ and accepts it as his personal Tao, in other words, a pathway to the eternal, yet who can't help but feel that something rather large is missing from his religious life and can't help but think that institutional Christianity has in some ways anyway outlived its ability to dazzle, tantalize, or excite us with the possibility of authentic mystical experience. So for, for many modern Western thinkers, the way to mystical excitement uh, leads inevitably through East Asia, not only in a horizontal uh, dimension, but vertical as well. We, we don't merely look across to this exotic other culture, but as Tony rightly points out, we look deep uh, into this other culture's past. And I suppose the reason for this is simple. Uh, modernization has turned any semblance of the present exotic into a tedious multicultural homogeneity. Why would you read contemporary Confucius when you can watch Chinese hip hop or Chinese life hacks on YouTube? Right? This is, it's bad enough that we call this progress, but we've also taken to calling it diversity. Um, and it's a diversity that we're supposed to venerate even as we despise ourselves for craving the different, uh, exotic other. So I, I freely confess that my own insatiable craving for the exotic may be the only thing that gets me into heaven. Uh, and I should apologize now to any and all spirit beings who may take offense at any otherizing gestures uh, that I may impose upon them in advance of my going up there, uh, should that come to pass. But then again, in the case of heaven, I would not be the colonizer, but rather the undocumented uh, border crosser. So, um to, to, to get to the essential question, um, and the main point of my, my commentary here, is what what is the essence of this, uh, the way? Right? T Tony, observed, Tony observes that for many of the scholars, past and present, um, the, the way is some kind of all-encompassing truth or logos or a ground of being. Right? But the way cannot be a state of being or even a disposition of mind. The character Tao, as Tony shared with us, is, is, is a means road or, or path. So it clearly must be some kind of a connecting link between at least two different grounds of being. Right? One of them is the presumably false, historically bound, <coughs> linguistically constructed state of being that we call the historical world. And the other, hopefully, a more authentic, seemingly more real state of being that all of us have been exiled from and some of us are trying to retain. Now, we imagine we can retain it by talking about it, but that only leads to division, and this is the essential teaching of Taoism, that talking about things is not a way. And um, an authentic state of being is also not a way. It is at best the terminus of a way, but not a way that can be weighed, or a way that can be followed. So the big problem, again, is not how to find 
an authentic state of being because we don't know what one is. Despite our intellects, our spiritual exercises, or our institutes of religion, if we pretend to know, we're probably wrong. And this is, I think, in, in, in my readings of Lao Tzu, is what Lao Tzu, whoever he actually was, really meant by the statement, Ming Ke Ming Fei Chang Ming. The name that can be named is not the eternal constant name. So the big problem, again, is what's the nature of the way that connects these divergent states of being? And again, unfortunately, neither Lao Tzu, Merton, or John Wu can offer much advice. What Tony has referred to as the most prominent definition of Tao is also arguably the truest. Uh, the way that can be followed is not the eternal way. Now, the grammatical constructions uh, in chapter one of this fine book do not specify, but we could read this to mean any way that you might want to follow is not the eternal way. So, I've come to think, um, after more reflection on the question than is probably healthy for anybody, let alone a middle-class club whose primary job is to raise kids and teach classes, uh, is that we, we cannot know the nature of the way, nor can we know the authentic reality that it's supposed to lie at its terminus. Now, we academics please ourselves by picking models of reality and defending them against all rivals, so much so that we eventually trade in the following of our own way for the perceived necessity of deconstructing everybody else's way. And unfortunately, this is, to paraphrase Gurdjieff, another um, interesting thinker, this contributes to the terror of our present situation. All we know is that everybody else is wrong. And we spend our vocations proving it, all the while harboring some schizophrenic hope. Uh, hope, sorry. Uh, Merton himself calls it a pious hope in, in the Zen and the Birds of, of the Appetite. But, quote, common ground can someday be found. Now, I don't think there is any universally shared common ground. And Lao Tzu seems to have been among the first to try to alert us to this reality. Our statements about things are not the eternal vow. <clears throat> this may be the ultimate statement of condition regarding our fallen earthbound reality. As nice as it is to valorize discussion and debate, we typically only do these things with people we agree with on 90% of the principles at stake. For the remaining 10%, we will happily work ourselves into a lather to demonstrate the folly of our opponent's take on, on the matter at hand. Now, the Enlightenment philosophers came closest to defining a common ground when they suggested that everybody should be allowed to live. That's pretty good. Let's start there. Um, although we've, we've retreated from even that position with a remarkable degree of self-celebration, it, it seems most true and most certifiable that wherever you find people sharing common ground, you will also find that one of them is a landlord and the other one is a tenant. 
I, I do believe, one thing I do believe to be right, is that if you are in motion, in motion, in any direction, you are by definition on some way. So in addition to asking how can we find our way, as Tony does in the title of his talk tonight, we could also ask, what is the inherent quality of our movement? The answer to that question would take us far in describing the nature of the way, which is most likely being rendered into existence with every step we take, true or false. So like the Japanese Neo-Confucianists of old, I would venture to say that the way, or the Tao, consists mostly of movements of the heart. And that any discussion of origins or ends gets you nowhere, um, nowhere on the path. Which is not a very dazzling uh, conclusion, but one that, I, that helps me at least suppress my own tendencies to dismiss the Tao's of other people. Now, one thing I would like to say, if you, if you don't mind, tell me a brief snippet here. Um, I didn't really tell you I was going to talk about this, but for the better part of a year, Dr. Clark and I spent our Wednesday mornings uh, translating the Tao Te Ching from Chinese into English. And every week we sat in the rocket bakery, and I, for, it began with me inflicting my hand-handed translations of Chinese, which were based upon my understanding of what these terms meant in Japanese. So kind of a, a third level of translation. And Tony very kindly corrected me or confirmed me in my, my renderings. And then we'd spend the rest of the hour talking about our translations and talking out the meanings of these 81 chapters, verse by verse, line by line, character by character. And as I think about you know the things I do on a day-to-day -day basis, I don't think anything in my career as a scholar quite stands up to the experience of translating this book with, with Dr. Clark uh, in terms of uh, the quality of the time spent, the insights gained, or the satisfaction enjoyed. Um, I shouldn't admit, some of my colleagues are here. At, at the end of these meetings, I, I got into my car and drove off to Gonzaga to apply the trade of college professor, always depressingly aware of the fact that the primary intellectual stimulation for that day had come to an end. Um, so, so this is a it's a time for truth. I'm sorry, I, and but but it's also it, it's good for 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 all of us who who are engaged in this work. I, I can't help but think that those of us in the higher learning industry, as receivers or, or producers, uh, could do much to revitalize our intellects, our hearts, and our world by returning to some very simple scholarly practices, like like what we see with Dr. And uh, my father, Thomas Merton. Read, talk, read some more, and talk some more. Um, and I think what, what Tony offered us here tonight, which is really wonderful, by the way, thank you, and uh, what he offered me in the production of our translation uh, differs very little from what Merton and we were able to offer each other. This is not an exercise in hammering out truth, but even better, uh, giving each other a chance to immerse their thirsty souls in the refreshing fountains of thought. And uh, with that, I'd just like to thank you again, Tony, and thank all of you for coming. Eric, 
very much. This, by the way, this is a taste of what we do every Wednesday morning um, at Rocket Bakery on what is it, first, second? We did it this morning even. This is this is kind of what we do every Wednesday. And by the way, there are way more Taoist texts if we want to start more. There's there are a lot more. There's some that are harder than the Tao Te Ching. So we would we could more we might need more than an hour. No, he didn't. That was interesting. Thank you so much. Those were great comments. Are there any questions that anyone might have before we just sort of adjourn to the 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 cheese and crackers and water behind us? Questions? Thoughts, comments? Yes. The Jesuit in the back. <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. As an Eastern Christian, I, I just want to say Basil was first. Benedict the second. Just anyway, throwing that out. Um, <laughs> no, I love the rule of St. Benedict. But Basil wrote a rule too. So. Um, that's a good question. For Wu and Merton, the, the, a lot of their discussions, because their correspondence happens um, uh, 55 years ago, and, and a lot of their discussions turn toward ecclesiology. And of course, um, this idea of this sort of Cenobitic ideal and this, this notion of community and relationality, especially for John Wu, the definition of being a human is being in relationship. So he was a profoundly Confucian person. So the character for being human is the, is the, literally the representation of a, of a person next to the character for two, which means that a person alone is not actually authentically human. So the ecclesiology of John Wu responds largely to the philosophy of Confucianism, which states that as Christians, we must be in community, relational uh, the dimension of rela relationality is crucial to that. And of course, Wu and, and Merton are both Catholic, and they're, they're actually, as much as um, I think uh, there's a rhetoric that they're experimental in their ecclesiology, I think their, their ecclesiology was more sort of solidly Catholic Orthodox, right? Um, but certainly, this relationality with Christ was important, and for Wu, I don't know how to answer that question in terms of Merton, but in terms of Wu, his ecclesiology was very strongly centered in the idea of being in relationship with others within the church as members of the body of Christ. And I wish I knew how he would relate that to Taoism or Confucianism. Good question. Yeah. This, this question, that, that is a question, you should come to coffee with us. Because, no, precisely, that's the precisely the kinds of questions that I think we ask. That is how, 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 if we can borrow the term logos, right? Um, what's the statement, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? That sort of question, that's a typical question. Um, if we can borrow, and of course in the Eastern Church we talk about St. Socrates. So, um, how do we navigate that if we're going to use logos in Christianity and canonical texts? Why can't we use Tao? So in some sense, I guess, how would I personally navigate that? Um, I would personally navigate that by first, I guess my point is this, by first really reading and understanding what the term Tao implies in the Chinese context as best as one can, and then 
ask oneself, does that match accurately in all ways or in some ways the, 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 the implication that we see in Scripture? And so, at least for me, I think it's fine. Personally, I think it's fine. But I, I think that the more Taoist texts I read, the farther away the Tao seems to be from the implication of Logos in John. And so it's a game of matching and, 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 and playing Tetris with, with how these terms work out. So um, typically, most Chinese Christians, I don't know about Japanese Christians, but most Chinese Christians like to think of Confucius as the equivalent of Aristotle or Socrates or Plato to later Christians as being more compatible in Taoism increasingly more suspicious of. Um, that doesn't mean I would discount all that is in Taoism. That, that was, actually, I struggle with that. In fact, I think as a, a thinking person, um, I always struggle with the, con- the process of translation. Um, what does work? No one has a, no one has found a word that accurately works for logos. So, um, which is why at the end of my, my, my paper, I tried to go back and point out places of of resonance between the two. But I guess my answer is, is simple. Um, I see advantages and disadvantages of using Tao, and I struggle with it myself. But I don't have any problem with using a term from another tradition. None at all. And I'd, I'd like to keep thinking about that. Any other questions? Um, Adam and then Alex. That's a great question. You know, like you're asking me if I think Machiavelli was okay. No, I'm, I'm not. I, no, not at all. But no. So if, am I affirming? How? Okay. So here's the thing: the Tao Te Ching, by the first century A.D., had been completely um, taken into a philosophical direction that wasn't its, its original form. So as we uncover early tombs, China is one massive. Um, one massive archaeological site. It's a, the, the whole of China is a time capsule. Every time they dig to, to install new phone lines or power lines, they find some tomb. It's incredible. But we now have early versions of the Tao Te Ching that were purely, even the character for Tao is, implies a kind of in putting people into action as a, as a political device. So you see in the text itself a kind of, um, you see passages that are purely political and it's very Machiavellian. Right, and and even even ideas of that, that in the early commentaries, a ruler should remain in the dark and rule people brutally, um, so that you, you you never say anything other than yes or no to your ministers. And if if i.e. If, if they give you a recommendation and you say yes and, and it was bad advice, you punish them, but you never made the, the you never it's not your fault. So you see this in the early Taoist text. So the the early Taoist use of way is about rule. And it is there. And you can still see it in the text. But it's been layered with philosophy and interpretation and reinterpretation. So it's a complicated, complicated text. So I think throughout the entire Tao Te Ching, you can read it as a political text with some philosophical add-ons. But by the Han Dynasty, they're reading it as pure philosophy. And then it becomes a religion. And then there's a belief that Lao Tzu occasionally appears to people as an apparition, like a Marian apparition, and he gives them the true Tao, and then they enact new Taoist ecclesiologies, actually, 
So what I was, I guess what I was trying to suggest is if you really study the text, it isn't originally as mystical as Merton thinks it was. It was a political how-to rule book. Yes, that is absolutely, I mean, the early texts, in fact, they're very, very blatant. The entire Taoist paradigm that we think of as a philosophy to, to become an uncarved block, i.e. to not be, refine yourself by learning, the uncarved block is what you want to make your people that you rule. A lot of uncarved blocks. You yourself, very carved. But them, very uncarved, so that it's easier for you to rule them. Dale. Yeah, all his books are imprimatur. So, I mean, I think um, there's nothing doctrinally wrong with them. And imprimatur doesn't mean yes. It means no no doctrinal problems. So um, I I think there's a Merton. I, I'm an enormous Merton fan. So, I, But I'm a, I'm a Merton fan as a scholar who engages it. There's a great deal of respect for Merton, I think rightly so. I like his pacifism, for example. Um, um, I, I think his, his, his works are, are fantastic. Um, but I do think translating a text from, a Chinese text from English to English is not the best route of getting it accurately done. Right? So, he's, he's beloved, but I think I would have certain caveats, me personally. Yeah. The mysticism of Taoism, of Merton, of, of his idea of mysticism. Merton gave lectures to the novice brothers at the Trappist Monastery in Thomism. He was a Thomist, actually. So few people think. I think Merton wasn't a Thomist. He was a diehard scholastic. But he was a scholastic who thought that, and I think rightly so, I think Thomas Aquinas is personally misunderstood. I think Aquinas would be fine reading about the Tao Te Ching. Um, he's far more mystical than people think he is. So um, I guess I would say that atomism and Taoism can be interwoven with red in a certain way. Oh, Alex. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't think they understood what the Tao was saying. And that, that's one point I don't think either of them actually got it. Um, here I am making a claim, right? That Merton didn't get something. Merton was brilliant, and I, I would, um, I venerate his, his work and, and his mind. But um, the the Tao, according to Taoism, includes all dualities. Well, and then you can almost say there are no dualities. But if you have a duality, it's included. So there is no such thing as anything. There cannot be anything pure good, because goodness and badness must coexist. Right? There is no pure anything. So a, a whole truth, a whole thing is both. That's why when you see the yin and yang sign, there's a piece of the opposite in the opposite part. It's actually called the taiji. So um, the whole, that's one of the, when the missionaries encountered Taoism for the first time, the Taoist said, your paradigm is skewed. This idea of a perfect God can't exist. Um, it was just a, a, an, almost an anathema to them. So, uh, I think that Merton and Wu didn't quite, I think they didn't, didn't center on that aspect of the Tao. 
which is one of my critiques. Yes. Yeah, so that's an awesome question. So, as I mentioned, um, the early, the first missionaries who encountered Taoism soundly did not like it. In fact, there were two groups that they castigated. That was one was Buddhists. The Teorici, the great enculturator, the Teorici thought that Buddhism was the most insidious uh, opponent of Christianity. He he wrote essay after essay after essay that that were anti-Buddhist. He had the same ideas about Taoism. So the, the so Taoist and Buddhist sort of ideas were attacked. Merton, and I think in a wonderful way, Merton set he set out to rethink how Christianity can engage Taoism, and and I think Merton's engagement was far more healthy than in my mind more healthy than Matteo Ricci. Ricci. Ricci, when he first arrived, saw that Buddhists were shaved and they were tonsured. They wore robes and they had prayer beads. And Ricci and the first Jesuits, the first thing they thought was they're Catholic or they're Christian or they're Chinese Catholics or Chinese Christians. So they started wearing Buddhist outfits. And the Buddhists, actually their first, the first Jesuit church in China was next to a Buddhist temple. And the Buddhists invited them there to set up an, an, another a, a, Buddhist, a Buddhist temple from Buddhists from the West. Um, and once they figured out that they really didn't see things the same way. Then the next thing that all the Jesuits did is they shifted and they started wearing Confucian outfits. Right? And that's essentially what they, how they sort of um, dealt with Taoism the same way. Oh, now I get it. And so they started to retract from it. Um, and there was a visceral response. Maybe one last question. Yeah. 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 No, that's not that's not tangential at all. Gosh, if um if I could convince one of the other you know, chairs on campus to go in with me, I'd have a symposium on Bible translation and how that's working out. It's I think it is such an awesome field. Um, if you if you open a Chinese Bible, so there's a lot of renegotiating with Bible translation right now because the terms were borrowed. The original the, the original Christian translations of, of the Bible in Chinese used religious terms and sort of tried to tr- transpose them into a Christian language, very much like the early church would do, right? Um, so you can, when you're reading, when you're reading uh, a Bible, you might get a sense of, you know, someone has uh, taken, they've, they've trans, they've, they've, they've um, passed to the other shore, which is sort of like a soteriological term. They're saved. When they found Christ, and that term literally in Buddhism means that you've been you've reached nirvana, you're extinct, right? So there's a very different Christian sense of eternal life and eternal extinction. So when you read it, you and you understand religious terms in Chinese, you're left befuddled by certain parts in the Christian Bible. If you open the the Bible, the Catholic Bible uses Tenju for God, and Shangdi 
for God in the Protestant Bibles. First thing you do, open book of Genesis, and what's the word? Two totally different words for God. The word Tenju, Lord of Heaven, is an ancient political term. Ten is, and Ju just means Lord. Shangdi, the Protestants borrowed for God because it seemed like it was a god, but it was actually the ancient Chinese term for a great ancestor of the past that you would make offerings to. So if you know what those terms mean, you look at the Protestant Bible, you're like, look, Shangdi is the god that people used to worship, this ancestor of the Shang kings, and they would turtles and they would make divination. It's a divination term, right? So now Protestant translators are thinking, ah, now we have to rethink this term for God even, which is a pretty important term, right? And and Tianzhu, for Catholics, they're looking at it like, well, Tian is this old deity that was used to describe that being that would legitimize your government. So ah, that doesn't quite work either. But finding the right word in Chinese is hard. And here's the here's the real. I, I tell my students this. This is the real the real sort of uh, I think crux. I don't think any scholars of East Asia think that there was any creation account. That there is this whole creatio ex nihilo is completely doesn't exist in the East Asian context. So finding terms from a culture that doesn't have a concept of something is nearly impossible unless you recreate terms. Um, and by the way, Zhuangzi did that. He created new characters, just out of the blue for things, just to kind of displace you. So that's a long answer to that question. The translation of the Bible is a very, very challenging project in Chinese. And that's why, just like anything else, in the Chinese Bible, there's a lot of commentary. We don't mean ancestor God. We don't mean political legitimizing entity. We mean this. And we want explanation. Thank you so much. I, I, this was a great fun. There are some great first first edition of Merton's Seven Story Mountain is here. The first edition of his Juan's, the first edition of John Wu's book, and the 17th century that my wife has asked no one to handle um, uh, from special collections. So, and there's also some uh, some food in the back. <laughs>